the scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 29, verses 31 through 46. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance to the, of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things which, with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you made atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on an altar two lambs a year old, old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure, a fine flour mingled with a fourth of hen, of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with a grain offering and a drink offering as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations as the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and you shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and you will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among you, I am the Lord, their God. This is the word of the Lord. Several years ago, 2006, Barna Research put out an article entitled, The Concept of Holiness Baffles Most Americans. Interesting title. The article had some interesting statistics from some of their surveys at the time. It said 73% of Americans said it's possible for somebody to be holy, but only 50% said they knew someone who was holy. Only 21% considered themselves to be holy, and that's data for Americans overall. The numbers for uh, those identifying in their survey as born-again Christians, only a few percentage points higher in each category. At that time, only 46% of born-again Christians uh, said they believed God expects you to become holy. So that's interesting. But when it comes to the meaning of holiness, there's even more confusion in their results. When asked to describe what it means to be holy, the number one answer, the most common answer was, I don't know. At least it's an honest answer. It's interesting that 73% of people said you could become something that apparently nobody knows what it is. But the other de responses for a definition of holiness were just all over the map. You have 19% say being Christ-like, making faith your top priority in life at 18%, living a pure or sinless lifestyle at 12%, having a good attitude about people in life, 10%. 
Focusing completely on God, 9%. Being guided by the Holy Spirit, 9%. Being born again, 8%. Reflecting the character of God, 8%. Exhibiting a moral lifestyle, 5%. And also at 5%, accepting and practicing biblical truth. One thing that all of those definitions have in common is that they are wrong. I mean, some are wronger than others. Some are pretty close, uh, or closely related to the concept of holiness. Some of them might, one of them might be right, depending on how you understand it. But uh, some of them might be consequences or implications of, of what it means to be holy. But none of them is a solid definition on its own. But what if instead of asking people, we ask theologians? Uh, I guess theologians are people too, right? But never mind. We like theologians. We're thankful for theologians. But uh, theologians tend to point to one of two things. Moral purity, on the one hand, or this idea of separation or otherness, on the, well, the other hand. So when we say God is holy, uh, most theologians would, would say he's completely pure, can't even look upon sin, and or they would say he is totally other, radically separate from creation, transcendent in other words. So in general, tend to think of purity or transcendence as the essence of holiness, and those, both of those definitions are also wrong. Uh, if you're just tuning in and wondering what's going on here, we've started this You Asked For It sermon series. It's a question and answer series where we've had people suggest topics and questions and some sermon texts uh, that we're addressing, or I'm addressing in this sermon series, uh, all based on suggestions from the congregation. Uh, this morning's topic came from uh, someone who was aware that I'm fussy about the correct definition of, of holiness, not just because I'm uh, generally fussy about defining words, which I maybe, I maybe I am, probably I am, I don't know, you can ask my wife, but because it also has consequences for how we live as Christians. If we're called to be holy, it makes a difference what we think of as holy. Um, so my, I also want to be clear, since I'm saying I disagree with what you might hear from most theologians, that I'm not just getting this uh, coming up with this on my own. Um, Peter Gentry was a professor of Old Testament at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now he's at Phoenix Seminary, and I, I didn't take any classes with him while I was at Southern, but I have been influenced by some of what he's written. Um, Gentry, in particular, targets this idea of holiness as separation. There's a common idea, uh, you may, may have heard this sometimes, that the Hebrew word for holy or holiness comes from related to an ancient Hebrew root word meaning to cut. So you get this idea that holiness would mean cut off, divided from, separate, set apart, this gulf between us. Uh, have you, has anybody heard this idea of holiness and, and, and cutting and being related to cut? I, I see some. The problem is there's absolutely no evidence uh, for this idea that the Hebrew word holy is at all related to this other word for cut. It was a guess by some German scholar in 1878. He was just taking a stab at where this Hebrew word might have come from. He didn't really know. He didn't have any evidence, just a guess. Uh, he took the, the fact that the Hebrew word and this other ancient word for cut just kind of sounded similar and made a guess that, that maybe they're related. And so scholars and pastors and Bible teachers since 1878 uh, started mistaking that guy's guess for an established fact and just repeating over and over this idea that holiness comes from the word for cut and therefore means separate. Uh, even R.C. Sproul in his otherwise excellent book, The Holiness of God, repeats this idea. The problem is that it's just a guess. 
could be about as accurate as saying that the word carrot uh, comes from the word to care because you eat carrots to care for your eyesight or something. Or uh, maybe, maybe a more plausible one would be that the word battle you know, comes from the word bat because uh, Legolas in the Hobbit movie said that these bats were bred for one purpose, war. So bat, war, right? So it, it's, it's based on, it's just, it's just a guess. But even more than that, even if it did originally come from the word cut, that doesn't prove that holiness means other or separate because we understand the meanings of words based on how they're used in context at the time, not, not where they come from. For an example, the word nice comes from a Latin root that means to be ignorant. But when we tell someone nice job, we don't mean you really displayed your ignorance, right? Or, uh, here's another one, the word lasagna comes from a Greek word that uh, meant chamber pot. I'm not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna touch that one. But, <laughs> so, and by the way, this is, this, this is the nerdiest portion of the sermon, by the way. Some of these questions, like I mentioned last week with the Trinity, are, are theological in nature, so we'll, we'll dig into some, some theological stuff, maybe more than is ideal for a sermon, but uh, this isn't just about this guy, Old Testament professor you've never heard of, and um, linguistic studies. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish uh, scholar, uh, also a Bible teacher, more well-known, also rejects in his book the idea that holy means separate. Uh, he, he says it's because, uh, well, think about it. If, if holiness means separation, then what can it mean for God to be holy? He can't be holy until he's created a universe for him to be separate from. So for God to be eternally holy, there either has to be an eternal creation, which is not true, uh, not what the Bible teaches, or holy has to mean something else, right? So he talks about this in his book on sanctification. I won't tell you what the title is because the title is exactly the definition that I'm going to propose. And if I tell you what it means now, there'll be no excitement for later in the sermon. So holiness can't mean separation. A definition is built on poor linguistic foundation and makes no sense theologically. So what are we gonna do to get at the definition of holiness? Well, we're gonna look at scripture Look at how it's used, particularly in the book of Exodus. Uh, because apart from one verb in Genesis 2-3, where God consecrated the Sabbath and made it holy, we really don't encounter the language of holiness until the book of Exodus. It's in the book of Exodus that God first reveals himself to his people as holy, using the language of holy, calls them to holiness, calls them to consecrate things, as holy sacrifices and the altar and so forth. And the first place we see this is actually Exodus chapter 3. This is where God meets Moses at the burning bush. And you may remember the situation. Moses has run away from Egypt. He's currently employed as a shepherd, working for his father-in-law. He's out in the wilderness doing shepherding, right? And he comes to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. And he sees this bush that looks like it's on fire, but it's not burning up. And he says to himself, I'm going to go check this thing out. Pretty weird. It's a bush. It's burning. It's not on fire. I mean, it's on fire, but it's not burning up. I mean, I, I know I'd want to check that out, right? If you're out and you see something weird, you've, you've got to explore that, right? You've got to, you've, your, your inner scientist sort of kicks in, right? And you've got to run some scientific tests on it, like poke it with a stick, right? 
So this is, this is Moses' plan. He's going to go to the bush and, I guess, poke it with a stick. But as he's approaching, he hears God say from the bush, Do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Just a few quick observations about that statement. I'll read it again. Do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. First, the idea of moral purity doesn't really fit there, does it? Uh, the ground just, it's not a moral entity at all. It's neither morally pure nor morally impure. It's dirt. It's not like this dirt has gone without impure thoughts for 30 days or whatever. It's, it's gone without any thoughts. You know, it, it doesn't sin. It doesn't do good or bad. It's dirt. So moral purity doesn't fit. Second, though, the ground it really isn't separate or cut off from Moses either. It's not that Moses is forbidden to stand on the ground. He's already standing on the ground. The location where he is, is the holy ground. The, the statement, do not come near, has to be about the, the bush, right? The, leave the shrubbery alone. Don't go poke it with a stick. The holy ground is ground that Moses is already standing on. Him, uh, standing on. So it's not separate from him, not forbidden to him. It's where God has come to meet with him, make his presence known. He does have to take his sandals off, though, and isn't that interesting? There are different takes on why Moses has to remove his sandals. There are two that I find myself drawn to. First is the idea that there's a spider that God wants Moses to kill, so take off your sandal and club the spider with it. Uh, since this almost certainly is not true, they tell me, um, couldn't get that article published, but I think the most likely explanation has to do with the idea of possession or belonging. Some time ago, uh, we had a sermon series through the book of Ruth, and if you were here, you remember that Boaz and Ruth had decided to marry, and for reasons that I won't get into right now, before they can do that, this other guy has to sort of waive his own right to marry Ruth first, and he does agree to renounce that and, and step aside and let Boaz marry Ruth, but remember what he has to do to make that official? He has to take off a sandal, and it says in their culture at that time, apparently this ritual removal of footwear had the same function as you know, signing a waiver would have in, in our day. They, they, we make things formal by paperwork, they did by rituals like this. So it's the same idea, I think, with Moses on the holy ground. God is saying, in effect, this land is my land. Moses came out there with his sheep, but this isn't part of his pasture land. It doesn't belong to him. It belongs to God. This holy land is land that exists to serve God's purposes. And Moses takes off his sandals to honor the fact that this land is devoted to God. So there are a couple pieces of the puzzle for us to chew on from Exodus 3. It's not moral purity. It's not separation. It has something to do with the holy place belongs to God. Well, the next place to look at is Exodus 29. Again, I won't be going through this verse by verse. Uh, we'll just point out a few details about holiness in this passage, and some of it will just reinforce what we've already seen. Uh, the idea of moral purity just doesn't work for the things that are called holy in this passage. Uh, if we were to skip ahead 
Well, no, let's not skip ahead. It's the first verse there in our passage. Look at verse 31. There's the unspecified holy place where you have to boil the meat, cook the meat from this ram that had been sacrificed. Again, places aren't really morally pure or impure. But then the meat from that ram itself is also going to be called holy. This ram was a sacrifice, by the way, made for the priests. Moses' brother Aaron and his sons are going to be priests in order to be sort of, we use the word consecrated, ordained as priests. A sacrifice has to be made. Interesting to think of a sacrifice as holy because sacrifice, uh, we, we think of it as a substitute for sin, taking on sin. You might be tempted to think that it's, it's unholy because it's taken on sin, but God says it is holy. The core meaning of holiness is not necessarily moral purity. The idea of separation is also interesting in the case of the, the sacrifice meat because the priests are commanded to eat it, but an outsider cannot because it is holy, so it does need, again, some special treatment. If you were to skip to the next chapter, toward the end of chapter 30, there's some words on this anointing oil. Uh, which is only for the priests, and God says, tells them it is holy to you. So it doesn't, that doesn't mean it's separated, separate from them. It's holy to them. So things that are holy do have special use that might in some sense be restricted, but it can't mean universally separate or forbidden or off limits. The amazing thing here to think about is that those priests, or anyone for that matter, is not just able to, but commanded to, eat part of the holy sacrifice. Well, further down, uh, verses 35, 37, we have instruction on the altar, so it also needs to be consecrated. By the way, consecrate just means to make holy. In Hebrew, it's the same, uh, just the verb form of that adjective, holy or noun holiness that you keep seeing. The whole passage might be clearer to us in English if we had a word like holy fi or something like that, but Again, they won't let me publish my own Bible translation with those things in it, so we'll just go with consecrate and tell you it means to make holy. So the altar is holy along with anything that touches it. See, whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So a shovel that you use to scoop ashes out of the altar, that is holy, even though it's a lowly shovel. Again, it's not morally pure. It does mean that you're not going to take that same shovel and use it to muck out the sheep pen, right? Uh, but that's not the reason it's holy. It's holy because it touches the altar, not because it doesn't touch the sheep muck. So if holiness has anything to do with separation, it would be more about what you are separate for than what you are separate from. And one even bigger point to chew on from uh, these, this passage here comes at the end, verses 43 to 46. God is speaking about the tent of, of meeting, the tabernacle, and he says, it shall be sanctified by my glory. Once the tabernacle is built, God's glory comes to rest on it, to fill it like a cloud, and that manifestation of God's presence among his people is ultimately what consecrates that tent, what makes that place holy. God continues, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. This is such an interesting verse because for 
uh, several chapters now, it seems, Moses has been receiving instruction from God for how to ordain and consecrate the priests, the altar, the tabernacle, all this stuff. Consecrate again means make holy, making them holy through days of, of preparation and ritual. And yet in the end, those rituals are not the determining factor. That's just preparation. The moment when they finally become holy is when God comes to dwell among his people. Look at verse 45. This is what all of this is leading up to. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see how the language of holiness is actually so intimately tied to the presence of God with and among his people? God begins revealing himself to his people as holy precisely when he begins to dwell among them as their God. The holy places are, again, places where God is present, meeting with his people, dwelling in their midst. God didn't talk about holiness when he kicked mankind out of Eden and separated himself from their sin. He started talking to them about his holiness when he redeemed his people, came to live with them, making them his people. If we look at Exodus chapter 19, this will be the last, I think, last passage in Exodus I'll look at, and then there's just one from Numbers briefly. Um, Exodus 19 is a key passage in the book of Exodus. This is where Israel is preparing to meet with God at Mount Sinai through Moses as a mediator. Moses is going to meet with God up on the mountain, receive his law, receive the Ten Commandments, all the way to the instruction we just read about, the consecrating priests and so forth, even beyond that a couple chapters. Of course, by the time Moses comes down, they're worshiping a golden calf, so it's a bit anticlimactic. But in preparation for this meeting, the people of Israel are to be consecrated, made holy. And we see in uh, the very beginning of this chapter, verses 4 through 6, really a purpose statement, if ever there was one, that God gives for his people, Israel, that he's just called out of Egypt. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So notice the purpose of God's deliverance, why he's doing this, the goal of the covenant that you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be a kingdom of priests. Priests are people who are, again, consecrated for God's service, and you shall be a holy nation. So what we see here is a special kind of belonging to God. I mentioned a little bit last week how God, you know, we know God is omnipresent, meaning he's present everywhere, but sometimes in Scripture his presence is, is made known in a special way, sometimes he is present in a special way. And when God says he's going to dwell with his people, we don't read that and say, of course he's going to dwell with his people, he dwells everywhere. No, we, we understand that there's something more about God's presence there. 
special manifestation of God's presence, there's also a special kind of belonging to God. All the earth is mine, but you will be my treasured possession. You will belong to me as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Language that, by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 2 is applied to the church. So without further ado, here is the definition for holy, and it's the same as the title of Sinclair Ferguson's book, which I mentioned earlier, Devoted to God. Devoted to God. We could flesh that out as belonging wholly to God. Uh, Peter Gentry, who I mentioned earlier, uh, says prepared and consecrated for fellowship with God and completely devoted to him. Again, go back to that that shovel, it's for God's service, not for other purposes. So holiness means devotion to God. And by the way, in saying this, I'm not arguing for some weird esoteric definition based on ivory tower scholarship. I think it's the opposite. I, th I think that's what that idea of separation and otherness coming from this theoretical root meaning to cut, that's too much ivory tower scholarship. I'm trying to escape uh, the damage done by academics gone wild here. Academics gone wild. Uh, maybe that happened at EIU recently. I don't know. Somebody had, no, no. Going to get in trouble. Somebody's going to throw stones at me. But no, devoted to God is a fairly basic definition of holy. If you go to merriamwebster.com, type in holy, the third definition down is exactly the one that I am saying is correct. Devoted entirely to the deity or to the work of the deity. The deity, of course, being God. So if that's what holiness means for us, then what does it mean for God? What does it mean when we say God is holy? Does it mean that God is devoted entirely to God and to the work and service of God? Yes, I'd say that's exactly what it means. Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 to 13. Israel wandering in the wilderness because they saw the promised land, they chickened out. They didn't believe that God would drive out the big, tall, terrible giants in the land. Have they learned the lesson to trust God now by the time we get to Numbers 20? No, they have not. They've come to a place where they can't find water. And again, they complain. God has brought us out of Egypt not to be his treasured possession, but so that we can die of dehydration in the wilderness. This is the place, uh, if you're familiar, where God tells Moses to take a staff and strike the rock and God brings forth water from that rock miraculously to provide for his people. It's also a situation where Moses and Aaron get into a bit of, bit of trouble themselves. God says, you're not going to be the ones to lead the nation into the promised land. And God says, it's because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. You see, in their grumbling, in their doubt, in their despair, the people essentially accused God of not being holy. They accused him of not being truly devoted to his purpose of redeeming his people, following through on the covenant with Abraham and the covenant at Mount Sinai, his promise to bring them to the promised land. They said God just gave up on them, was not committed to them, that he'd abandoned his people, abandoned his promises. But despite the failure of Israel and its leaders, Numbers 20, verse 13 concludes, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. 
Now, what can it mean that God showed himself holy there? You might normally tend to think that if God showed himself holy in the context of people rebelling against him, that would mean that he's going to smite them, right? Uh, You are sinful. I can't tolerate sin because I'm holy, so here it is. But God shows himself holy by bringing water from the rock. He shows that he is devoted to his purpose of redemption, devoted to glorifying his name through his people, devoted to caring for them, leading them through the wilderness as he promised. They are not really committed to him, but he remains committed to them. And this is his holiness. Is this kind of holiness then, you might ask, is it capable of producing the the awe that we saw in Isaiah chapter 6, where the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I think it absolutely is. To stand in the presence of God, who is unwavering in his devotion to his purposes and his glory, to carrying out his plan until the whole earth is filled with his glory, I can't think of anything with more weight and seriousness than that. If you've ever had one of those co-workers or, or supervisors who is just all business, as they say, in a total company man, dead serious about the company's policies and, and visions and uh, bottom line, no room for relaxing or slacking off, you, you might get kind of an idea of, of what this intensity is like. You know, I, when I sold shoes years ago, Fortunately, my boss didn't care all that much as long as we were selling stuff, which somehow I managed to do. But sometimes you'd get a visit from corporate, and then you have to be extra careful about using the officially sanctioned company greeting when people enter the store and official sales tactics every dang time. You you just decide one time that I'm not going to show the $20 pairs of socks to this person who's just looking at cheap flip-flops. They're going to catch you, and they're going to have words for you, right? Well, multiply that intensity times a million, times infinity, and make it about something that actually matters, not selling socks, right? Something you and I and every molecule of existence actually should be wholly devoted to. Make it the glory of God. To stand in the presence of God, to see the blazing fire of his devotion to his own glory and purposes, knowing how much of your life you've devoted to playing Candy Crush or to scrolling social media looking for something to be outraged about or how much of your life you've devoted to idolatry, to pursuing comfort and pleasure and prosperity without regard to God's purposes and God's glory. That's a sobering thought. Yeah, I I think God's devotion to God's purposes can stop us in our tracks can make us cry with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, this definition of holiness seriously ups the ante of the Christian life, raises the stakes, doesn't lower them. Pursuing holiness is not just a matter of don't sin. It's not about what you're separate from, it's what you are separate from. For what your life is ultimately to be devoted to. Again, think of that, just go back to the, the shovel example. Shovel that you use in the altar, it's holy. Not holy because it never touches sheep muck. If you have a spotlessly clean shovel, but it's just hanging up in the shed, that's not a holy shovel. To be holy, it actually needs to be used for God's purposes. 
What is that supposed to look like for us as believers? Well, in John 17, before he went to his death, the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for the holiness of his people. John 17, beginning in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify means make holy. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It's crystal clear, isn't it? In asking the Father to sanctify us, Jesus isn't asking for us to be taken out of this world, removed from this world, separated from this world. He is sending them into the world. That is the purpose of their sanctification, of their holiness. It has a direction going into the world. The word of God, the truth, sanctifies us in order for us to be sent into the world. We have a holy mission to be present in the world, to proclaim the word of truth in which we've been sanctified, the gospel, and to pursue the kingdom of God. You see, holiness, I put it this way, it means devotion to God, and that means to all the things of God, his morality and his mission, his goodness and his good news, personal righteousness and proclaiming redemption in Christ Jesus. Or, to use the words of James, visiting orphans and widows in their distress and keeping yourself unstained from the world. Both of those are pure and undefiled religion. It's an error to think that you can pursue holiness apart from pursuing the Great Commission and the Great Commandments, making disciples, loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the kind of holiness the Pharisees would have tried to pursue, right? Where it's just a matter of Look at all the sins I don't do and the personal righteousness I display, tithing mint and cumin and dill, all the things that mark me as better than, as separate from the crowd. But that wasn't holiness, was it? Separation from people, separation from the world, from sinners, it's not holiness. I'd argue it's just a different kind of worldliness. This is what the world likes to do, is, is mark themselves as better than others. Holiness is not found in reaction against the world, but in devotion to God, devotion to God's purposes in your life and in the world. This is a higher standard, entire devotion to God. And we do fail to live up to that daily, don't we? But there is good news, as there was good news in the wilderness, that God is still holy. God is still completely devoted to his own purpose of redemption. How committed to God's glory is God? Well, if we go back to John 17, continuing Christ's prayer, the very next verse, after he's prayed for his disciples to be sanctified and sent into the world, what does he say? He says, for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What does it mean that Jesus consecrated himself or sanctified himself or made himself holy? 
means that he devoted his life himself to God's plan of redemption as a holy sacrifice. This is his prayer as he goes to die. When he says, I consecrate myself, it means I devote my life, devote my body and blood to be the holy sacrifice in order to make my people holy. Back in Exodus, we saw how Aaron and his sons were sanctified or made holy by the sacrifice of a ram. By that holy sacrifice, they were devoted to the service of God, and then God came to dwell among them. Christ is our holy sacrifice. By his death, and by his resurrection, we have been devoted to God, by God himself, and God comes to dwell within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within. The New Testament repeatedly calls Christians saints. Another word that means holy. Holy ones are saints. That's who we are now. Not because of anything that we have done or ever could do, but because of the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus who consecrated himself that we might be sanctified in truth. Receive this through faith and faith alone. Christ's devotion to God is stronger than our lack of devotion. Remember how Christ would touch an unclean sinner. When Christ didn't become contaminated, that sinner became holy. So do you want to pursue holiness? Trust in the holy sacrifice of Christ. He is your holiness. He devoted himself to God on your behalf. Paul says in Corinthians, Christ became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, holiness, and redemption. So do you know anyone who is holy? Look around, right? You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because as the author of Hebrews said earlier, by the single offering, offering of Christ, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you are in Christ, you are holy now, and you are being made holy. And when God has finished his work in you, you will be completely devoted to the glory of God. That is who you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as you have shown us in your word, as you've shown us in your gospel, as you have shown us in the gift of your Son, you are holy, holy, holy. You are completely dedicated and devoted to your purposes, your promises, your glory, which is magnified in this wonderful display of grace. That though we as sinful people have gone about devoting our lives to ourselves, our own devices and sinful desires, our own idols, Yet you remain holy. Your glory and your 
your grace are undimmed by the sins that we have committed. On the contrary, your grace abounds all the more as you have shown yourself to be gracious to us, unworthy sinners though we are. And through the consecration of your own Son as a holy sacrifice for sin, you have redeemed us. You have made us saints now, holy ones, who are made holy by nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, washing away our sins, consecrating us, cleansing us, devoting us to God. We've been bought with a price, and we belong to you. Lord, this is a high and holy status that we already have. It is also a high and holy calling that you have placed upon our lives. We recognize we are not equal to the task. We still feel the pull of our hearts toward things that are not the things of God. And so we confess our need for third person of the Trinity, so aptly called in Scripture, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, who by his presence within us makes us, as individuals and as the church, the temple of the living God, and who by his work within us continues to wage war against our sinful desires continues to stir up the fruit of the Spirit within us, stirring up our hearts to greater devotion to our God, to his purposes. We pray that he would be active in our lives, turning our hearts ever more toward the grace of our Father poured out for us in the sacrifice of his Son, reminding us of this holy calling and helping us to live as we have been called, not for our own glory, our own purposes, but for devotion to the glory of, of our God as his grace is displayed in us and through us. We ask these things in the name of our holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.